This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Frank Chaparro. Frank is editor-at-large at The Block and host of The Scoop podcast. Many of you know him as Fintech Frank on Twitter. This episode is a little different as we dive into what it's like to be a journalist covering frontier technology that moves at such a rapid pace. We cover the challenges of reporting in crypto, lessons learned from the FTX saga, and Frank's view on the overall ecosystem. Please enjoy my conversation with Frank Chaparro. Frank, thanks for joining us today. I've been excited to do this one. I thought a fun place to start would be, you've had a journalistic career. You've been the guy you know, with Frankie Scoops. As you look back of your time covering different stories, what have been some of the biggest scoops that you've had fun covering and reporting on? Well, it's kind of like picking between your children, isn't it? There's many that I hold near and dear to my heart, but you could probably break it down into two different categories. The ones where you really have to pick at a lot of different threads to get to that final story, and then the ones that just have the most impact. So if I think about the latter category, especially early on in our history as a firm, one story that we broke in 2019 was the full list of Libra's partners. That made a big splash, but that was as simple as someone just sending me a document and me writing it up in 30 or 40 minutes. If I think about the former category, I kind of harken back to the Hasleyon days of 2018 in which we spent almost two months chasing down this really wild story. It didn't have as much of an impact, but it was certainly fun putting it together. And this was a story about an ICO project called Blockchain Terminal, which centered around this man named, or at least he went by Sean McDonald. He sort of came to the US from Canada, if I'm recalling correctly changed his name from Boaz Menor, changed his hairstyle, rumored that he got some form of facial reconstruction surgery, and then went out and raised $30 million via an ICO to build out what was effectively, it wasn't a real product, it was sort of half real, and it was a crypto version of the Bloomberg terminal. But that was a multi-month long process of talking to different investors, combing through various documents, but it was centered around two very like poignant moments of putting that story together. The first of which was when I had a picture of Sean when he was Boaz and showed it to one of the investors and he said, holy fuck, that's Sean McDonald. So that was just like seeing the reaction on that guy's face was pretty poignant. And then part of that story, I actually wrote and did reporting within the office in which they built this thing out. So there were these defected employees who still worked out of this office after the whole thing kind of shut down. So I guess it could be equivalent of me writing a long 
platform piece on FTX in the Bahamas at their office. That was a pretty cool moment. And especially early on, it was really core to our DNA to break really big stories and get them out there, right? So early on, we really crashed the space with stuff like blockchain terminal basis shutting down. We were coming out of an environment in which there was a lot of froth and a lot of CD behavior. So that just really created a perfect opportunity to not just look at price fluctuations. There wasn't really that many back then, but telling the stories that most of the mainstream publications weren't necessarily looking at. But there were really interesting stories, especially around these different ICO projects that shut down to banking issues with Tether. And so that's kind of how we started. And I definitely look back fondly on those early stories and those early scoops because they set the foundation for what we became as an organization today, which is about 90 people spanning research, news, and data. As you compare it to business journalism or traditional journalism, it feels like crypto is powered by narratives and rumors and information is just flying at a rate I never experienced in traditional finance. I'm curious how your process for filtering that, deciding where to spend your time, how you track down a story, when you decide to publish something that drops into your lap, how that process works. I like to think that over time, we continue to become more robust in the process by which we report out different stories with multiple editing layers. Each story is not just edited for copy and grammar and ensuring that it makes sense to the relevant audience it targets, but also for technical soundness. But it's not all that different in terms of the actual process of reporting something out. You want to have several sources. You want to ensure that they have direct knowledge to whatever the matter is that's being reported on. In terms of sifting out the noise, it's really something that comes with like a degree of crystallized knowledge of the space. So if you've done it for a long enough time, you've kind of seen some of the similar tropes play out. To just give one example, you have a lot of people come on the scene saying that they're like the new institutional play. It's like, okay, we've seen this before. We've seen several institutional exchanges that go nowhere. So you can come at it because you've seen some of these plays not pan out. And going forward, like a year from now, two years from now, you could see something similar where maybe someone raises $50 million from A16Z to launch a new algorithmic stablecoin. We'll have the knowledge of what happened in our history and be able to ask the questions that will address the shortcomings of the folks who came before, if that makes sense. So I think a degree of it is just having a team that is so deeply rooted into this space to know where mistakes have been made, what has worked, and then allowing that to inform the way in which you go about asking questions, which then informs the reporting that you do. How does crypto Twitter serve as a source or the village center, if you will, of information where I feel like, again, the background's mostly in traditional finance, where the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times covers a story. The scuttle is usually amongst investors, maybe on Bloomberg IB chats, but it's not on Twitter. Whereas on crypto Twitter, it feels like that's where a lot of information breaks both true and false information. And then seeing what you're reporting on sometimes is like, okay, this is actually the facts. Just yesterday, Kobe does a hash and all the internet, Twitter at least in our world, goes off. How does that play into deciding sources, information, connectivity for you? You definitely have to take it a bit more seriously than you would. It might be a bit disconcerting 
to a new journalist entering the space to have different players in the market who are maybe anonymous or go by funny names on Twitter, but they're right a lot. They actually have access to the information. Part of the job is actually in the same way that you build a relationship with someone who is the CEO of a company or who is an investor or who runs a fund. You have to put a similar effort into building relationships with these people who are on Twitter, who are anonymous, because they, in many instances, even more so, have access to a flow of information that's relevant to what we do here at The Block. And in many cases, they serve as that first tip in more instances than a regular person at a company. But you also have to be careful. You can't just go completely off of some anonymous person on the internet, but you have to take them seriously. And I think that's one thing that we understand here at The Block is that there are these different characters that, although at first glance, they might seem a bit ridiculous, there's something there. They have access to information. With yesterday, right, that was interesting because the same rumors were floating around on our side. So it was something we had on our radar and we actually reached out to Interpol and Binance prior to the tweet heard around the world. So it's interesting. In crypto, information flows much more freely with much more unbridled speed and tenacity than it does in other markets. You really need to almost think that like every day could be April Fool's Day where people are trying to pull the wool over your eye. One example that I think back on is when this very clever, I guess you could say scammer, whipped up a press release on Newswire about Walmart accepting Litecoin. And a few publications, I think even like a CNBC went with the story because it looked really legitimate. But the team here, I remember we were all looking at this and just immediately just knew how ridiculous it was with all due respect to the Litecoin people. We just knew that that wouldn't be something that would happen. And so with that sort of expertise or that sort of keen eye to not get bamboozled, we sort of held off and didn't fall victim or prey to that scam. Yeah, I think that's getting to the point that traditional journalism, which is a whole separate topic of how people and maybe the mainstream media have made it more entertainment journalism. I don't know if I've ever experienced a place that has as many false reports sometimes as truth reports or as many shit posts and joking that can be turned into real stories. And I just wonder as a journalist, it feels exhausting as just a market participant and investor and trader at times to figure out what to do. I'm curious as a journalist, how it feels. Is it more exciting? Is it fun? Because every day is like, to your point, April Fool's and you have to be a detective over like, don't step on this landmine, produce that report. This is a good story. This is a false story. Or is it just like a completely different skill set that has to be developed? I certainly think it's more entertaining. There's no day that looks like the previous day. That's for sure. It's lively. The one thing about the block is we all really enjoy being in the thick of it. This is what we live and breathe. So I think the people who are here, they're here for it, as they say. You mentioned the relationships. That's something I'm curious on developing the relationships in a way that I don't think people, at least myself, understand the challenge of doing that when you're also the reporter, the referee calling strikes and balls in a way that's different than friends on Twitter and telegrams and DMs is how do you handle building relationships in a space that does seem to have sometimes a high level of camaraderie and friendship and people refer to you as friends, but then having to report on it? It can result in some uncomfortable situations. 
it's a challenge, especially when the space is smaller in bear markets. There's sort of a camaraderie to your point in just sticking around and being in it. I think as long as you establish an understanding about exactly the sort of terms of engagement, you're probably fine. I think most people know that my job is to sort of sit between different market participants and the market itself to ask the questions and to shine light upon things that they need to know to make decisions in their professional lives. That results in us having to report on things that make people look all sorts of different ways, good, bad, and in some instances, somewhere in between. And obviously presenting both sides to whatever that story might be. But it can result, and you have to be very comfortable with this as a reporter, people getting very upset with you when you don't necessarily position them in the best possible light. But I found that most people come around to understanding that even if they get a bit upset, can take them anywhere from a few months to a few years. But in most cases, I think they understand that this is the role. And as important as it is to be very friendly and to sort of be engaging and be fair to people, that's just one pillar. The main pillar is to sort of get the necessary information out there. And so in some instances, the latter ambition or goal can make certain relationships a bit uncomfortable. And that's just the territory in which we operate. Are there situations that you regret that because of crypto Twitter's makeup of how people talk and share ideas that they didn't understand the situation? And then a follow-up to that is, are you ever able, based on this, the role you're in, to kind of turn it off and go to dinner and be like, I'm here as just Frank the normal and we can talk about whatever you want? That does happen. I sometimes go to dinner as Frank the normal every so often. It's as basic as saying this is off the record or let's just keep work at work. And there are certain relationships that I have that there are people that are in the industry, but they're not necessarily an industry relationship, kind of like just a normal relationship. And then never the twain shall meet, as it were. I don't know why that sounds very sexual. I'm not trying to make it sound <laughs> that way. Covering the biggest stories, you know, last year, obviously the FTX story and all the coverage of it and how I think Sam particularly had a relationship with both crypto media and mainstream media. Covering that and now looking back on it, what are some of the things that you think about? It's a good lesson in being a bit more sharp in looking for red flags and not allowing personality to let your guard down. And this speaks to a question that you're sort of hitting at, which is how do you balance maybe being congenial and building an audience with being hard-nosed as a journalist? And when I think back on the FTX story, I did ask a lot of the important questions. I think the scale was tipped a bit more into the memory and the cult of personality of Sam versus the actual fundamentals of the business there. My own personal verdict of the job I did covering that firm, I think, would be that could have been a bit tougher, maybe a little bit less memes. Although I think both are important. It's striking a balance, but he did a good job generally. I'm not trying to be too hard on myself at throwing glitter into the eyes of most market participants, whether it's VCs, media, or traders. So there were these constant announcements and commercials and 
promotions that obfuscated the fraud. And I think that was intentional in hindsight. If you sort of wave the right hand a lot, you can't really see what the left hand's doing. We definitely need to be sharper just in general as a space to ensure that those types of actors don't have a platform to do that. You're getting to the point that I'm trying to ask about and the thing that I think a lot about is that in a world that's become very tribal, and even though inside the crypto world, the thing we come for is like sub-tribes, there's still this bigger tribe of crypto versus the world in some ways. And I wonder about just a structure in crypto that does seem very different. All the top sources of knowledge have usually very large Twitter followings, anonymous or not. They are entertaining. They seem good at connecting with people. It's different than I would kind of assume the traditional world would handle like information reporting. So I think that that's what I'm curious about is how to, FTX is an example of it to your point, but mainstream media, investors, everyone was fooled, presumably like by the fraudulent side. And I guess just thinking about that balance of how you think about that, of being fintech frank and funny online and Twitter and being engaging and someone that it seems like I would feel comfortable having a beer with, but then also that balance of that hard-nosed journalism into a space that probably could use more critique from the people that have the most knowledge and access. It's not necessarily a difficult thing to do. If anything, I think the soft power of an online presence that is in some instances light and entertaining allows people to feel more comfortable with you and opens the door to asking them those really tough questions. They may not think that they're going to get them. So if anything, I think it creates a foundation for people to trust you and then you just do the job. With FTX, though, I think they just moved so fast that it was difficult to sort of pick up on some of those red flags. And their growth was breakneck and came out of nowhere. So it was like one day they're just this weird, scrappy firm. And then the next they're a multi-billion dollar company, just constantly raising and making these announcements. And Sam did a very good job at opening himself up to opine on anything. So there was like this illusion of transparency that made you feel comfortable with him, which I think was an interesting tactic. Like you talk about anything, you ask him about any sort of prevailing market concern or topic, and he would be game to opine. When the news started to come out, when the balance sheet came out and the news story started to flow, and I'm sure your information was faster than most people, what was your feeling at the time? Was it that this all happened from the beginning? It was a fraud that everybody missed? Or how did you originally react to the news? Well, I immediately hearkened back to some of the earliest days at the block in which we had different people coming to us, sharing different details about the origin story of FTX and how it sort of sprung out of Alameda. And there were all sorts of different stories that they were launched to cover a whole in the Alameda balance sheet back in 2019. And that was the whole point of launching FTT. So at the time we went to them with that and we wrote a story diving into these claims. So I immediately thought back onto that. And as it was coming together, it was just like speaking with anyone who I could, early Alameda and FTX employees. And it was in those few days after everything came to light that we were piecing together the back door, the different red flags that existed in the way in which they were raising for FTT, combing through the different documents in which Alameda was soliciting funds from investors. So it was kind of just going back to day one 
with all the benefit of context or hindsight, I should say, piecing it together, but it was pretty speedy. Everything kind of fell into place. It was like just someone turned the light on and then you could see where all the skeletons were. Speaking of that, one of the things that happened was this notion that Mike McCaffrey, the former CEO of the block, had a relationship with FTX, which I felt, I mean, I sent a message to you and Dudas when it happened, just because I felt like that had to be a gut-wrenching personal moment for you, that this was beyond just covering the FTX story. Yeah, it's very strange when you become part of the story, although I will say I'm a bit disappointed that the block's not mentioned in the FTX Alameda Wikipedia page. I feel like that news event would have warranted our inclusion. It was difficult in the moment, but if this is the job, you can't dwell on the way in which you maybe fall into the story. You have to push through it. Did you ever have a point where you thought it's time to do something different or was your initial instinct like we've just got to figure this out and rebuild? Well, I think that all of us here are like really committed to the growth of the company and serving this really important role as we see it. It's like every time there's that meme of you can't get any worse and then they have the different images. I think we're like in that, but it's exciting. Like if it wasn't exciting, I wouldn't do it. Every day presents a new, unique, bizarre storyline that just makes me so engaged. There are moments where it's like slow and I'm like, oh, maybe there is something else I could do. And then an exchange blows up and goes bankrupt. And so you get back to the drawing board. If you were writing the Wikipedia page for the block and you could fast forward 10 years, what it would say in the future? What would it say? I think that it would highlight exactly what we built, which is the preeminent source of data, news, and research in the space. And like an enabler of new participants entering the market, becoming educated on it and playing a key role in the growing up and the maturity of a nascent industry. And hopefully that Wikipedia page would have a whole long list of different investigative pieces that we've written that have shined light to power and made an impact on everyone involved in this market. You mentioned the meme of going to get any worse and that it seems like the headlines get more negative. And curious to get your take on comparing this bear market to other bear market cycles. How would you frame it? And how do you think about it? What's different about this one is in 2017, 2018, it was these white papers in a dream that were emblematic of the froth of the market. And that kind of made sense. Like that's easier to grapple with, like a bunch of kids who don't really know what they're doing, building tech that like doesn't work out. This one was a bit more insidious. And so probably will be tougher to sort of rebuild from and also has antagonized our regulators. And that's because it was at the heart of it tied to who were supposed to be the grownups of the room, a complete meltdown of our capital markets and centralized trading infrastructure. But that's not really a crypto issue. It definitely hits on how we can trust each other when you don't have robust capital markets and you don't have trust that definitely is an impediment to capital formation and everything you need for just a sound market. I think it's going to take a while to rebuild, but it didn't really impact the reputation of crypto as much as 2017 did. It impacted more so like the players. So, okay, I get that this crypto thing works, but I don't know who I'm going to trust. Whereas in 2017, I felt like I don't trust anyone. And also, I don't think this crypto thing works. And in your opinion, coming out of the 2017, 2018, I know it was a different framing. 
I'm curious how you see that shaping out from your experience and knowing the players of you had people like Sam and Barry Silbert and the Winklevoss twins, people that were kind of at the pinnacle of either large market caps or influence and power all having issues. Where do you think that we go from here? And the second point will be a question kind of like on the regulation because someone is going to have to answer or push back against the regulators. I guess the first part of that is just moving forward. Hopefully, these various cult of personalities will not have as big of an impact on the space. We're not just going to rest in our laurels and assume that just because someone has a big name or has been in the space for a long time that we can inherently trust what they're doing, regardless of the number of zeros in their net worth. I mean, that's a good thing, right? In terms of the regulation part, this is going to be a challenge. They're clearly not happy with this market, but also we're not, in a lot of cases, doing ourselves any favors. There's one firm that we're looking at that is an up-and-coming market maker that's doing a lot of wash trading and artificial volumes, and it's like, almost feels like Alameda 2.0. So until we actually grow up and think about actual ways to self-regulate or to implement standards that exist in traditional finance, the regulators are going to step in and they're going to potentially throw out the baby with the bathwater if we can't get our act together on our own. I agree with you. I think that crypto always felt like very experimental to me. And it feels like what unfettered capitalism is or what people think they want, which is that you would have larger booms and bigger busts. You would have cults of personalities coming in and leaving. And that one of the bedrocks of crypto was this lack of intervention and this lack of stepping in to change those outcomes. But to your point, it leads to a absolute direct impact with the regulators looking at that and realizing that random people can get involved and lose money and that's not okay and people are going to want to step in. And so I agree, it does feel very self-inflicted in some ways. And I'm just not sure how the industry tries to rebuild itself without some sort of leadership or larger names that can speak that. You know, I think not knowing Sam, but watching him negotiate in DC, there was at least crypto had a seat at the table. That seat's gone. And now it's the potentially scapegoat for DC and problems it's not even related to. Yeah, we need to step up in that respect. But I think also one tailwind on the regulatory front is that this industry is now larger. It's created a lot of wealth. The market participants are not just crypto. They're large companies in Web2 who want to be involved in NFTs and digital collectibles and digital identity. So the space is a lot bigger than it was. There's more at stake here, and there's more people who have a stake in it. It's a more diverse group. So it'll be difficult to completely throw the baby out with the bathwater because there's so many new people that their livelihoods to an extent are tied to it. So it could become politically unpopular to take the more aggressive stance of someone like maybe an Elizabeth Warren, because this is something that's employing people. It's something that maybe you don't see the value in Bitcoin, but there's certainly something about the market or something in the market that is relevant to you, which wasn't necessarily the case in 2017. So that's one positive factor that the space has from a regulatory perspective. It's a very good point. I totally hear because of, I think of other people's quotes of the best way to change is to be really successful so you have a seat at the table again. And so maybe that's where we find ourselves. 
when you're talking about regulation in DC, I think about the White House press corps or mainstream traditional journalism. And I find it funny a lot of times when it feels like the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journals, or the New York Times writes an article about crypto. It's usually factually incorrect. Maybe at best, they actually quote you guys and take some of your stories and try to republish it. But how have you felt about the interaction with traditional media covering crypto versus crypto media-focused organizations? A lot of the job is to present multiple sides of a story. And I think the mainstream media takes an approach of any crypto story has to sort of have a graph or a component of it that calls into question the relevance or the efficacy of crypto in general. Whereas it's probably just a business story. Like if Coinbase is moving out of a jurisdiction or launching a new product, it's not because crypto is bad. You can have a cynical story without calling into question the relevance of what this industry is. So I think that's a bit of a distraction. And that doesn't mean to say that you can't look at some of the downsides. It's just not always relevant and bogs down various news items, in my opinion. And part of that is the clinging on to these narratives that don't really make sense and just kind of get repeated again and again. For instance, this idea that crypto is unregulated, and you'll see this a lot. And it's unregulated to an extent, but there are firms that something like Coinbase answers to New York Department of Financial Services. Most firms operating in the US have the money transmitter licenses. It's not blanket unregulated. There are offshore venues that aren't. Dozens of firms hold the infamous bit license. So it's those types of narratives. Also, just even the energy and the ESG narrative. I mean, there are hundreds of cryptos that, whether they're useful or not, don't take up that much energy as a Bitcoin, maybe. It's all viewed as a monolith. So that's another narrative. And it's hard to see the nuance in both of those examples. The nuance of some are more regulated than others, some are more environmentally friendly than others. I think that sort of varnishes certain publications' approach to reporting out on different topics in this space. Where do you think it comes from when you mentioned like Elizabeth Warren and now this anti-crypto army? It's interesting to me, and I'm sure you've thought about it, but what about that approach is so attractive that crypto is unregulated? The negative sentiment, not just the article or the headline, but to your point, coming with this really biased opinion of this is bad, I'm going to write about it. Obviously, I can think with media, it gets headlines and clicks and they're optimizing for that. And Elizabeth Warren must be assuming that it's going to do something, but it is a little bit confusing to me of the driver and the incentive to write in that way or to go after that narrative. I mean, with Elizabeth Warren in particular, she is very much in the investor protection maxi camp, I guess you could call it. And let's be honest, crypto, especially over the last year, has hurt a lot of investors. So she wants to, again, throw the baby out with the bathwater to prevent anyone from getting burned. I genuinely think she doesn't see the benefit of what crypto can do and is only looking at the drawback or the negative side. It's just everyone's perspective. What's strange to me, though, is that I remember reporting on Wells Fargo at Business Insider six or seven years ago and her sitting on the other side of the dam, if you will, 
with John Stump, I think was his name, was the CEO of Wells Fargo, and just like going after him for these really unfair banking practices that hurt a lot of their clients. The eight is great mantra, if you remember that, where they would open up accounts for clients without telling them and the overdraft fees. And I actually found her approach to that very inspiring. I mean, she really was holding power to account. So it is weird to me that someone who has railed against the banks for these unnecessary fees and the rest goes on, that she doesn't see the benefit in being your own bank. It's a bit ironic to me. In this case, maybe I'm more of the cynic of trying to understand the angle of approach for it more than the leaf that is protecting anyone. But I think to your point, it's hard not to have been frustrated with back to some of the foundational stuff of coming out of 08 and 09 and being close to the financial crisis and understanding everyone's frustration and anger and that being a lot of the genesis to then come out on the other side and say, yep, this isn't the answer. Shut it all down. Yeah, it's very strange. The block does more than just news and media. You have a podcast, you've got a column and articles and research. What else does the block do as kind of its global offering to clients? It's a great question because people often think about us as just being a news service and they think of the few reporters that maybe have an outsized presence online. But I think we're about, like I said, 90 some odd people. So there's the research component, which we're working with some of the largest technology, investment, financial services companies, venture capitalists in the world, and helping them wade through this market in various different ways. And a lot of that is firewalled from the news side, but it is its own operation that was formerly run by Larry Cermak, who's now our CEO, now run by George Calley. And that's just a different business. It's almost like a client business. They effectively work with different types of companies to get them more educated on the space. And that ranges from consulting to due diligence to all sorts of different services that we offer there. And then obviously, just like any other organization, we have operations folks, marketing folks, sales folks. We have a data team, data analysts who have built out this dashboard that we have. Data is an increasingly important part of the business. And then we have news. So it's effectively an information services business with a news team that is maybe more visible to the people who know what we are. But there's a lot more than just that. And it's funny, especially in the wake of Larry becoming CEO, I see people tagging him saying, hey, are you guys going to cover this? Larry has no idea what we're writing about on the news side. And he didn't as research head, and he certainly doesn't now as CEO. So this is going back to a question about the misunderstandings of how this whole thing works. Larry, on any given day, probably to his benefit and his mental health, has no idea what I'm doing on any given day. Maybe this is our own fault in the way in which we present ourselves. The community thinks Larry and the research people and the news people, we all hop on a call at 9 a.m. We think, all right, what are we going to do today? It's just an actual organization. And they have their KPIs and their priorities, their schedules, and we have our own as well. As says the podcast team and the list goes on, it's not just 10 guys spitballing on what things we should post to our blog. And I hope this doesn't sound like I'm on my soapbox, but it's super important to me that people understand this because it's just the fact of the matter, just how the organization runs. It's frustrating that people do view us as this monolith. It's a great point you make because 
I think there is a false assumption there that it's just, hey, what's going on? Let's decide to write about this. And that there isn't the same kind of walls as you described them. It was funny. I was talking to someone. I said something to the effect of, I have to run this by my editor. And this person said to me, well, I thought you were the editor. This is another misconception that I can't just put something on the site right now if I wanted to. It has to get edited by someone, in most cases, two to three people. And there's actual processes here that each story has to subscribe to. I'm the second most tenured employee at this firm. I can't just put something on the site. So that's, I think, important for people to know as well. The editor thing reminded me of a joke. I think it was during the tenure of Pope Benedict, he was late for some meeting at the Vatican and his driver was going too slow. He sort of gets out the car and he says, I'll drive, gets into the front of the limousine and the Pope just starts speeding down the motorway and he gets pulled over. And the officer sees that it's the Pope driving and he was meant to give him a ticket. He calls up his supervisor and he goes, we have an issue. I can't give this guy a ticket. And he goes, well, what do you mean you can't give him a ticket? Who is it? He goes, ah, I can't. He's just too important, too important. And he goes, well, come on. You're supposed to give a ticket no matter who it is. doesn't matter. How important could he be? He goes, I don't know, but his driver's the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> that was very good. <laughs> it gets to your point, though, that Twitter moves so fast. The information moves so fast. There's so many citizen journalists that are reporting or interacting. I don't think people hold it in the same regard because they assume it's all fast and loose, wrongfully. Sometimes I wish we could move a bit faster. I would love to just get certain things on the site quicker, but the process is important because it just makes the reporting more robust. So the podcast stuff's new to me. You're really good at it. What's your process and preparation like when you're interviewing guests or getting guests on the show? I'm super curious how that works. Well, the benefit is that we have this big team, right? So Across the org, we have experts who are on a day-to-day -day basis focusing on NFTs or on MPC custody to decentralized finance. So I really lean on them, the folks that really have their ear to the ground on these different topics. So if I have a guest who's an expert in X, I'm going to go to the person on the team who's also an expert in X and have a conversation with them and basically interview them before I interview the actual person who's going to come on the show to serve as a foundation to the conversation. That's definitely a differentiator for us and I think for the show. And just reporting on the news and being engaged in the news helps inform most of the conversations because I know what's going on. Do you like it? Do you enjoy it? Like, do you enjoy the podcast medium more or less than the writing? I do. I wish I didn't do so many shows though. Three a week is a lot, but if I did two a week, I'd probably enjoy it a little bit more. <laughs> but no, I definitely enjoy it. I like talking to people and I like hearing what excites them and angers them and frustrates them and all that jazz. It's very fun. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it after doing three shows, doing a fourth. We end this with the idea of usually what you want to build, but I'm curious to ask you whether it's for the block as one of the leaders at the firm or for yourself and all the different things you work on. What are you most excited or focused on over the next six months and over the next six years? Well, they want me to start a newsletter, so that could be exciting over the next six months where I just maybe opine on some of the topics that we unpack on the show or just different asinine things that happen to pop into my mind. So that's a six-month endeavor. Six years 
just growing this thing bigger is what I'm most excited about. Well, thank you, Well, Frank, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 